If you've been with us for the past few months, we've been discussing the topic of spiritual warfare. It's a term that applies to the Christian's battle against sin. And sin, as we've said, uh, can come from three major sources. Uh, the flesh, which is your human nature, your, your own, your body, your flesh, right? Um, the world, which is the influence of society around you and stuff. And the devil, that there's actually an unseen enemy who is a, a fallen angel, and he leads the other fallen angels, and he's, he's, he's known as Satan, uh, sometimes called the devil, uh, and he has other titles, but uh, that's kind of where we, we go with him, right? Uh, we're keying in especially on this character, the devil, on Satan, uh, and on, on his army of demons, um, on unseen spiritual enemies that affect and influence us toward ungodliness, on uh, creatures that are invisible and yet are part of the created order uh, that m- maneuver us to sin because, uh, because they hate God. And this week is something of an extension of last week. Uh, last week we looked at Satan as a slanderer. That's what devil means, right? Slanderer, diabolos. It means slanderer. Um, Satan and his demons, they slander. They speak against people. And they speak against people to you. So that in your head they, they get you to think about someone else and focus on their sin and their guilt and their unworthiness and their, their, their shortcomings, their wrongdoings. Uh, and the, the, the goal for him is to get us to judge one another and hate one another so that we break fellowship with one another. He uses our conflicts to create division. Because when the body of Christ stands together, it's strong. And when it's divided, our testimony fractures. Uh, we, can't, we can't evangelize. We, 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 you know, we, our, our prayers are hindered, etc., I want to show you something in, uh, in not Christian theology, in witchcraft. Um, many of you know that I, I had a, a very short time in my, in my life where I was uh, fascinated by witchcraft and kind of pursued some of the thoughts there. In witchcraft, witches are taught uh, the seven high-ranking demonic rulers or principalities. Um, and they're taught this to help understand uh, d- demonic possession and like what causes it and, you know, and, and how it works and all that stuff. And so they're told who the seven most powerful demons are in witchcraft, okay? Now, this is not from the Bible. This is just what witches are taught. But I want to show it to you on a slide. And I kid you not, the very first demon, the general of the demons is called reggae, okay? <laughs> I'm not even joking. Brother, I'm so sorry, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> Uh, reggae is the general of the occult. <laughs> he de- <laughs> this is terrible. Uh, he, he deals with... For those of you who are listening to the recording and don't know who Reggae is, that's our, our worship leader. <laughs> he, he just led a bunch of songs. Uh, reggae deals with, uh, with such drugs as marijuana, hashish, <laughs> cocaine, and speed. I can't keep saying this. LSD, etc. Et uh, he, uh, he's involved with sorcery, which is uh, pharmakeia in the Greek, which you know, pharmacy. Right? Drugs and sorcery, they're, they're the same idea. Okay? Um, he's uh, involved in attacking the mind to open it up for a demon to enter. That's, that's what the general of the, of the demons does, the, kind of the leader of the demons. There's another guy named Lars. He's the demon of sexual lust, homosexuality, bisexuality, adultery, and other such sexual perversions. There's another guy, Bacchus, um, excellent energy drink. Uh, <laughs> he, he's the... <laughs> He's the demon of addictions, uh, such as drugs, smoking, alcohol, and maybe energy drinks. Who knows, right? Uh, there's a fourth demon. His name is Pan, from which we get the, the word panic. Uh, he's the demon of the mind. He, he causes mental illnesses, depression, suicide, 
uh, nerves, like, you know, just being on edge all the time and, uh, and rejection. There's another one named Medit. He's the, uh, the demon of hate, murder, killing, war, jealousy, envy, and gossip. There's another uh, demon called Set, which is actually where the name Satan comes from, the title Satan, which means adversary. But Set, uh, he's the demon of death. He incites wars, terrorism, genocide, etc. And then there's this seventh demon, this very last demon. And, uh, and this one's interesting. It, the, this demon is called the Christian demon. And this demon has no set name. He doesn't have an actual proper name. He's just called the Christian demon. He's so powerful that most witches won't, won't really bother him. They won't deal with him and stuff. His job is to weaken a Christian's walk with the Lord by making the Christian content. To make the Christian fail to live up to church commitments, such as uh, giving, giving money to the church or to the ministry, uh, winning souls in evangelism. Um, participating in church and serving the body, etc. Uh, and his, what's uh, described as one of his most destructive tactics is to get Christians to talk about other Christians through gossiping and causing strife within the church. Again, none of the above information is, uh, is from God's word. None of it is taught in the Bible, but uh, it, it's, it's just kind of, it moves around in witchcraft, and I want to make a few observations about what they teach each other. First is that uh, even witches and Satanists, because Satanists kind of overlap on some of this, uh, this teaching, but witches and Satanists think that the best way to defeat the church is to set Christians against Christians, right? Think about that. One of his most destructive tactics is to get Christians gossiping about each other and causing strife within the church. Satan is a slanderer. He causes conflict to divide us. That stops us from glorifying God. It prevents others from being saved. It it ends our effectiveness in the gospel, our effectiveness for the Lord, right? And another thing is just something as normal as laziness or gossip, which is something that uh, I think we can say is, is something that we can see in our churches and stuff. Uh, laziness and gossip is understood even by witches and Satanists to sometimes be from a demonic influence, that demons will work in that kind of a way, in, in what seemingly is a mundane way. Not magical, it's not supernatural, it's not, you know, it's not scary or anything like that. It's very, it's very normal, very domestic, very familiar and close to home and is right there in the heart. And we don't think of demons that way, which is why we don't guard against them adequately. It's why we don't, uh, we don't pray against them that way, because we don't think of them that way. I mean, how many times do we, do we sit back and go like, when I gossip, I am the mouth of Satan? Like, when, when do we really hold ourselves to that kind of a standard? Or uh, how many times do we think like, you know, there are times where we're just content. Well, I don't need to go to church. I'm tired. I, you know, I, I did my other stuff Saturday night to stay up, you know, I, I don't know, whatever you do. You hung out with your friends, watched TV, uh, played video games, went to the gym, all that kind of stuff. And so that stops you from coming to, to church on Sunday morning. And that contentment of like, I just like living my, my life this way and I, I, I think I'm fine. And it, it stops you from, from attending church or, or, or showing up to serve or to give or to evangelize, etc. And no one thinks that in that moment... Satan has actually taken hold of your heart and convinced you that life is okay and you don't need to do this thing at church. And all of a sudden, you're serving a dragon. Everything that goes in our hearts, in our unseen thoughts and attitudes and decisions, all of that 
that's in our minds, in our thoughts, in our hearts, it's all a target of a spiritual war. Your flesh desires pleasure and possession and power and pride. The world endorses your own, uh, your, your own self-regard and your own self-esteem by telling you to, in a sense, be your own God. Make your own rules. Uh, go, go for your own happiness. And the devil uses the flesh and the world and those influences and those impulses against you. And he's got a slew of strategies to stop you from experiencing and accomplishing God's will. He lies to you about God and about God's will and God's intent and God's motives. He tempts you to love what is sinful. He makes you focus on other people's guilt and unworthiness during conflict so you'll separate and divide instead of giving grace and forgiveness. In fact, if you uh, take a look at Satan as a, a slanderer again, we'll, exp- uh, we'll, we'll, um, we'll kind of take a, a, a review, uh, an expand, expanding review of, of last week's uh, talk on him as a slanderer. Um, you'll find that he's an accuser. And they're very related terms. Now, I want to kind of uh, sort that out for you a little bit. If you're taking notes, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about uh, Satan as a slanderer first, as a devil, as a slanderer. We're going to do some review on that. And then we're going to talk about Satan as an accuser. And then we're going to talk about how that affects us. And then, of course, we'll end it with uh, how can we stand against the accusations of of the devil, right? Let's start with uh, Satan as as a slander. Satan is the devil. He he is the devil. He is the diabolos, the the slanderer. Um, The book of Job is, is the place that we're going to look. This is a book about a man who loves God and lives obediently to him. Uh, above reproach. Like, there's really nothing you can say bad about this guy, Job. He's blameless and he's upright. And Satan has a conversation with God in heaven, because he could do that in the Old Testament. He was was, uh, able to walk in and out of heaven and stuff. Uh, And he has a conversation with God, and he accuses and he slanders Job. And his whole point is that Job is only faithful to God. He's only a, a, a good person because God has blessed him with all this stuff. He's so rich and he's so healthy and prosperous and stuff. And so, of course, he's going to worship you, God. If you take away all his stuff, he's not going to worship you anymore. He's going to be mad at you. He'll curse you, right? So look at Job chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, those are angels, in, in the way that it's written there. Uh, now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, L-O-R-D in capital letters, before Yahweh. And Satan came among them. Yahweh said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered Yahweh and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now, think about this. Satan could dwell in heaven and on earth. And recently, he's been walking around on earth for some reason looking for something, Right? God's like, where are you coming from? And he's like, well, I, was, I was roaming the earth to and fro. I was checking it out. So he was looking for something, and he doesn't say what it is, but uh, the, the description of him kind of gives it away, right? It says, here is, here's this guy, Satan, which means adversary, enemy. It means the, the bad guy, the opposition, the antagonist, right? So antagonist walks into, into heaven when God is talking with the angels, and God goes, okay, antagonist, where are you coming from? And he's like, I was walking around on the earth, right? So he's looking to be an enemy. He's looking to be an adversary because he's just being called by a title here, not by a name. He's being called Satan, adversary. Verse 8, 
And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my, my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Right? Have, you cons- have you thought about my guy here? So here's the thing, right? As it turns out, Satan has been walking to and fro on the earth looking for someone to slander, looking for someone to accuse, to tell God that, you know, oh, these are your people, sure, but your people aren't so great. That's what he's looking for. He wants to find someone and be like, God, come on. These people, what's, what's the, the big deal about them? They're not as great as you say they are. And here's God saying, did you look at this guy, Job? He is awesome. He's, he's a great guy. He lives an obedient, worshipful life. Here he is. And so here's Satan's response in verse 9. Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch or destroy all that he has and he will curse you to your face. That, right there, was the accusation, right? Satan said that Job was only faithful because he had so much stuff. So of course he's going to love God. God gave him all this stuff, so he loves God. He's, it's, that's just how people are, right? If someone gives you a lot of stuff, you're like, oh, I love this guy. I can't believe you gave me all this stuff. But Satan says, if you take away his job. Take away his money. Take away his outstanding reputation. Take away the admiration of the people. Take it all away, and he'll have nothing, and he will hate God. Sadly, if if Satan said that of many people in the church today, I think you and I would agree that he'd oftentimes be right. But that's not the point. He's, he's talking specifically about Job, not about people today. So Satan is a slanderer, and, uh, and he, you know, he says in chapter 1, if you take his ble- the blessings away, then uh, Job will curse you, God. And God says... Do what you're going to do. Take his blessings away then. Go ahead and, do, you know, you can, you can do all that stuff, but don't, don't harm him though. And so Satan does. He takes all of Job's stuff away, like his, his children die and his, his, his property all breaks and burns to the ground, everything like that. In, in one fell swoop, everything he has is gone. He was the greatest man in the land and he was reduced to nothing in this, like a single afternoon. And the, the uh, reaction of Job is he, he stops, he, he is freaking out, of course, that everything's gone, but he decides instead of cursing God, he's going to worship God and say, naked I came from my, uh, from my mother's womb, naked I'm going to pass out of this life, so, you know, what am I complaining about? And he just starts to worship God anyway. And so God was right, right? Like Job is an outstanding guy. But then Satan doesn't stop there, and he never stops. He doesn't stop slandering. He doesn't go, oh, I was wrong. I stand corrected. He doesn't do that, right? He, he always tries to incite conflict between God and God's people. And so uh, after Job 1, right, uh, Satan's going to come back and say, well, of course he's, he's still going to be faithful to you because you still left him with his health, right? Take away his health and then see what happens. Then he'll curse you. That's what he's going to say. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. It says, And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless, upright man who fears God, turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And there it is again. Even though Satan was wrong about Job before, he didn't run out of things to accuse him about. 
right? He just looked for something else, right? He was proven wrong, and he just decided to bring something else up because that's what he does. He slanders, he accuses, and he doesn't stop. Day and night, he doesn't stop, right? He's a slanderer, he's an accuser. He points at people and focuses on their guilt and their unworthiness. And that kind of, so you can see him as a slanderer. He's going to God, telling God about someone else, and his guilt and unworthiness and all that stuff. That's, a, that's what a slanderer does, right? Now, let's talk about him as an accuser, okay? Satan is an accuser, right? Uh, I want you to remember the main passage for this series comes from Revelation 12. That's really kind of where we're platforming a lot of our conversation. And uh, this is where Satan is specifically called an accuser. So I'll put it up on the board, Revelation 12, verse 9. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan right? That's Satan. Okay. Verse 10. It says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Uh, Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Okay, now, functionally, there isn't much difference between what Satan does as a devil or as a slanderer, as a diabolos, versus what he does as an accuser. They're really, those terms are, are almost synonymous, slanderer and accuser, right? Um, we are going to separate them to help organize some of our thoughts, okay? Uh, if, if Satan or a demon comes to you and whispers into your mind certain ideas that are false or damaging about someone else in order to incite conflict or judgment or to make you withhold your love or to, you know, to bring, uh, bring a, a, a poor regard, when a demon comes to bring slander in your mind against someone else, that's when we're, uh, we're using that term as slanderer. Okay, that's, uh, he's, it's aimed at damaging your regard for someone else so that the conflict results in division. Okay? But what if Satan or a demon comes to you and whispers into your mind false and damaging ideas, not about someone else, but about you? Because you realize he's just as capable of doing that, right? If he could tell you about how, uh, how terrible of a person someone else is, he can also come and talk to you about how terrible, terrible of a person you are. And when he does that, we're going to use the term accuser, right? He makes accusations against you. Slander, slander is something you do against someone else that's over there. But accusations you make at a person, right? At the, the second person, in the conversation, right? The first person, I, speaks to the second person, you, and you accuse. You did this. You are this. You always, etc. Satan is an accuser. That's where he, he comes and says, give up. You're worthless. You're a fake. You'll never change. You'll never amount to what you think you are or want to be. So that's the distinction we're going to use, right? Slander is when he comes and talks to you about someone else in order to incite conflict and division. But as an accuser, he brings accusation against you. And that's a whole different story, because when accusations are brought against you, you don't conflict and divide with yourself. You can't. You are just you. And so you get this whole weird mixture of of reactions 
when accusations are brought against you, right? When you get defensive, how do you react? When someone calls you out, how do you react? Now, this is what Satan does. He, he, uh, he leads you astray. He, he wants to, he, he'll say anything in your mind to corrupt and destroy your devotion to God, right? He targets your thoughts and feelings. Consider some of these verses. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. It says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent, that's Satan, as the serpent deceived Eve back in Genesis chapter 3, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Right? And uh, what Paul is saying there, the, the Apostle Paul, when he writes that, he's saying, like, just like Satan deceived Eve so that she didn't trust the Lord anymore, I'm afraid that he's going to do the same thing to you and your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You, you won't trust him. You won't, you won't rest in him. You won't depend on him. You won't delight in him. You won't take refuge in him. 1 Peter 5.8, uh, the apostle Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that's like a, a verse that we're going to keep coming back to. But consider this. What do you think is Satan's goal with all the different strategies he uses against you, right? He, he uses deception. He uses t- temptation. He uses slander. He uses accusation. What's the point? The point of it is so that you stop trusting Christ. You stop following Christ. You stop glorifying Christ. Why? Because Satan hates God. Satan hates Christ. That's why. We'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but uh, you're kind of inconsequential to him. He, I, he doesn't really think about you. He, he thinks about how much he hates God. And if getting at you and damaging you and breaking you will some, in some way hurt God, that's what he'll do. Not because he, he thinks about you. He doesn't care about you. But he hates God. So he's not in heaven accusing us in front of God. He's been thrown down. He's here on the earth knowing that his time is short. And he's running around doing as much damage as he can. He's prowling around in our midst, our adversary, the devil, the diabolos, like it says in First Peter, right? The slanderer. And he wants to devour you. It's not just he wants us to devour each other, but he wants to devour you. He wants to target specifically you. So what happens when the devil comes as an accuser against you? How does this affect us? How do, do his accusations manifest in, in, our, in our reactions? What happens when, when he comes with, with accusations against us? When the devil makes you focus on someone else's guilt, that's easy. It just makes you to fight. Or it makes you withdraw and say, I don't want to talk to that person. I don't want to have anything. You know, it, it breaks the relationship, and that's, that's very predictable. But when the devil makes you focus on your own guilt on your own sin, on your own unworthiness, on your own shortcomings, on your own wrongdoings, on your own failures, it can have a number of effects on you. And the devil doesn't even really need to do that. Your flesh can do it all by itself. You know, you and your human nature can just focus on, on how you, you don't really meet your own expectations and stuff, and then you can spiral into your own little universe of, uh, of reactions. But again... If that's something the flesh will do, and if that's something the world will kind of pound you with, then the devil will take advantage of that, right? There are uh, 
four ways that we'll just kind of, four categories that we'll try to talk about how this affects us. Four little responses that oftentimes take place. The first one, uh, we'll call it anger and frustration. Anger and frustration. And you can even throw in and violence to add on to that. Anger, frustration, violence. You put that, put that all in there. I, I don't know why we react this way, but sometimes when we're fed up with making mistakes, uh, we act out in anger, in frustration, in violence. We, we do that. I saw it. Uh, you, you can see it in, in, in very basic behavior. Um, my son... When he was learning piano uh, in the beginning of uh, uh, you know in the beginning year uh, when he was learning, he was practicing piano and he kept making the same mistake. Just over and over, he, he would he would play the the you know the, the song. The song wasn't even very difficult, and he knew it wasn't difficult. And yet he kept running into the same mistake, hitting the same wrong note, or or, or doing the timing wrong, etc. And after after doing that multiple times, he just started screaming. Right? He's playing the thing, he makes the mistake, and then he stops, he just goes, ah! Then he does it again, and you know, he takes a breath, and he tries to do it again, and then he makes the same mistake, and then he just started slamming the keys with his fists. Now, no one had to teach him that. That was just something that naturally came out of him. So I called him over, and uh, I said, you know, Elias, come here. Lie down with me uh, on the couch. He's just, you know, you, you stay on that cushion over here. I'm be on my cushion over here. And just like, let's just lie down. Don't say anything for a while. And it's not because I had a cure in mind. I just needed a break from all the noise, right? <laughs> but I let him take a 10-minute nap. Or I don't know if he napped, but I took a 10-minute nap. <laughs> and... Uh, when I woke up, I said, how do you feel? And he's like, uh, better, I guess. And I'm like, me too. <laughs> so I said, all right, take a deep breath and then go try again. And then he goes and he sits back down and he, uh, he plays the thing and it was easier for him. And I'm like, good. But just in that moment, that moment where he was making mistakes, he was freaking out and he, he just started slamming those keys. This violent reaction was coming out of him. And all he needed was a break to kind of recalibrate his, his mindset, his mentality, and kind of get out of that zone where his, his thoughts and his, his, his feelings were all crunched up into this frustrated ball. Now, I'm not saying that a demon came and frustrated his piano practice. I am saying that demons can use that kind of a reaction. I mean, if we have that potential over something as, as ridiculous and petty as practicing piano, uh, if that's how we can freak out, uh, imagine what happens when something really upsets us. I mean, there are several of us that have punched holes in walls or kicked the dog or whatever you do. Think of First uh, Samuel 16. There's this guy, King Saul, right? And King Saul was not a... He wasn't a good person. He was not a good person. He was not a God-worshipping man. Uh, and so... He was, he was king, and he was not doing a good job, and so God's like, okay, well, you obviously want nothing to do with me, so I'm out. And so uh, the Lord kind of departs from trying to help him in his ministry, uh, in, his, in his kingship over the nation of Israel. Um, and when, when God left, God allowed a harmful spirit to, uh, to torment him and, and to affect his mind. Right? Like, God was just, okay. a harmful spirit basically wanted to, to do something to, to the king, and God allowed it to happen. So, 
Verse verse 14 of 1 Samuel 16. I said that weird. 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. It says, Now the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from Yahweh tormented him. Verse 23. And whenever the harmful spirit from, from God was upon Saul... David took the lyre, which is a stringed instrument. David took the lyre and and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So you can see that there's this harmful spirit, this evil spirit, this uh, this demon. And uh, the author just, you know, the way that the Old Testament authors would just say everything is under the sovereign hand of God, and so uh, it's like God sent the, the demon. That's not exactly how it happened. He allowed the demon to go, much like in Job, uh, God's like, yeah, you can afflict, uh, you can afflict Job, and so Satan goes and he does that. But then in chapter two, he's like, see how you have tried to incite me against Job, right? And it makes it sound like God did it. God didn't do it. Satan and the demons do it, right? I hope you can sort that out. All right. But this is an in, uh, instance where a harmful spirit is doing something in a person's mind, and his re- reaction is anger, frustration, and later on, uh, as this thing gets worse and worse, he becomes violent. He starts throwing spears at David, right? Which is like, uh, that's, that's like the manifestation of this, this anger and this, this frustration that's being uh, put inside his mind by a demonic force, by a demonic creature, I should say. Just think about how people that uh, in the Bible who are possessed by demons, how do they behave? You can see the self-destructive behavior in Mark 9. There's this boy possessed by a demon. He keeps trying to kill himself by jumping into fire or jumping into water to drown. In Mark 5 and in Matthew 8, it talks about two men that are possessed by demons. They would cut themselves. And they were so like unmanageable and, and stuff that they would, uh, they would live out in the tombs because no one could, could be around them and stuff. And if, if they were ever chained up, they'd be so fiercely strong that they could break the chains because of the demonic power in them. Anger and frustration and violence are things that won't exist when we're in heaven, right? So think about where all this takes place, like the fact that we have natural reactions of anger and frustration and violence, the fact that that is so inherent, so immediate, so instinctual as a coping mechanism or as, a, as an initial reaction, uh, these are things that have no place among God's people. They ought not to be. They shouldn't have power over us. And yet for some reason, that's just what we immediately resort to for many of us. When we aren't who we want to be and we feel like all we have to blame is ourselves, we focus on our failure, we get angry at ourselves, we get angry at God, we get angry at anyone who is near us. That just happens. The spiritual warfare becomes very real. And that's neither patience nor repentance nor humility, the things of God. I've met too many people who were so convinced of their own unworthiness, their own worthlessness, that... Uh, that they cut themselves or they wanted to kill themselves. And I, I, I don't think I can say that the cause is always demonic, but I do know that harmful spirits can torment a person so that they lash out on themselves and against others. When it comes to anger and frustration at ourselves, we have to retrain our instincts to pray for restraint, to pray for self-control, to, to pray for a, a different way of handling things. Look at James 1.19, and here's a really good reminder here, right? Uh, it says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, verse 20, for the anger of man 
does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger directed at ourselves is not the anger of God. Right? It's undoubtedly the anger of man, and that does not produce righteousness. The enemy can use that against you. He accuses you of your own failings. He puts that in your mind front and center, and he wants you to delve into that anger rather than into righteousness. Second way that, that uh, his accusations affect us, fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety. And insecurity, if you want to throw that one in too. A pretty good number of people in this room are familiar with what it's like to have something called a panic attack. This is hard for, for me personally to relate to. Um, I've never had a panic attack. So I've, like really what I'm going to talk about, I have to talk to someone else about it to kind of find out what it's like. Uh, I, I have an unusual lack of fear, an unhealthy lack of fear. I'd even say, I think my amygdala is broken. Uh, I think that's why I was probably a stuntman before I went into ministry, and I think that's why I drive the way that I do. <laughs> but the, the, uh, the idea of a panic attack, it's that sense that you're, you're, uh, you're looking at your life and you're just drowning in worry of how you aren't who you want to be. You aren't who you thought you'd be. Your life isn't how you expected it or wanted it to turn out. It's this vortex that gets you dwelling more and more on how you feel like you fall short on some secular standard. You feel like you don't make enough money, you don't have enough friends, uh, you're not attractive enough, you feel behind in your life compared to your peers, etc. And the Bible never mentions the term panic attack. It never does. But it does have moments where it seems very clearly like the author's are experiencing something much like that. Look at Psalm 55, verse 4. The author says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. Right, that's, just, that's just two verses out of that psalm, but you should see the, the stuff that these guys say and how, how screwed up they are and how paralyzed they are with fear. The biblical authors were familiar with sudden and intense terror overwhelming their hearts, and they would, they would write about that, and they'd try to bring it to the Lord. There's a panic attack is one kind of fear. There's a different kind of fear, too, by the way. There's a different kind of fear. It's not panic from feeling like a failure, but it's the fear of, the, the fear of failure, the fear of becoming a failure, the fear of failing. I think um, we all kind of experience this, on certain occasions. I mean, how many of us don't evangelize because we're afraid our friend will ask a question and we won't know the answer? Ever use that, right? How many of us don't want to talk to someone about how he or she hurt us because we're afraid it'll make things awkward? How many of us cheat with school or with work or with money because we're afraid if we don't, then we won't have the life or the status or the position or the reward that we want. Now, every time that, uh, that you want to evangelize and then a voice says, no, 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 he might ask a question and you won't know the answer, then you'll look stupid and then they'll never come to church. Is that the Holy Spirit talking to you? Of course not. 
So who is it? Well, it's not your friend. It's your enemy. Can you hear it? Can you hear the sound of a serpent in your ear telling you that trusting God will only hurt you, will only make things worse? Don't you see how the whispers of a dragon convince you that if you do what Jesus wants, your life will only get harder and it won't be worth it? Or you won't have the thing that you want, and so don't do it. By his cunning, Satan amplifies your fear of suffering and your distaste for discomfort so that you abandon godliness and neglect obedience to Christ. Your flesh is prone to tremble in fear or anxiety or panic at your feelings of stress or failure. And so you know Satan uses that. You know he does. And if Satan uses your fear and anxiety against you, then you know your only defense, your only defense, is to bring it to the Lord. You cannot fight Satan by your strength. You must bring it to the Lord. You know that verse we keep referencing in the series of the devil prowling like a lion, seeking to devour you, right? That 1 Peter 5, 8 verse. Well, look what it says, just starting two verses before that. If you were to go to 1 Peter 5, 8 and then rewind two verses, here's what it says, starting in verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Okay, I'm going to read that again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the diabolos, prowls around like a a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Hey, think about this. We get overwhelmed with stress because we feel like we're failures to our own expectations. And then God says to humble yourself under his hand. Like, chill. Just relax. Stop thinking your judgment of your life and your, you know, your disapproval of how it's turned out. Stop thinking that your judgment outweighs God's judgment. He's not condemning you for for not getting the job or the school or the possession that you wanted. God reminds you that he is going to exalt you, right? That, that is a sure destiny for everyone who is his child, everyone who's a believer. That is your guaranteed destination. He will exalt you. You are bound for glory. There is nothing that will take that away from you. What What are you worried about on like the stuff of earth that you don't have? Don't compare your stuff to other people's stuff. Don't compare your position to other people's position. That's neither thankfulness nor contentment nor sound judgment of what constitutes real treasure. The only fear that the people of God should have is the fear of the Lord. The deep awe and reverence for God alone. No other fear is fitting for God's people to be ruled by. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. If you remember the time when Joshua, back in the book of Joshua, was going to lead the people of Israel into war, 
against the, uh, the Canaanites, when, when he was going to lead them in war, God gave him instructions, very specific instructions. He had said it several times. He said it in Deuteronomy, and he said it in, uh, twice in Joshua chapter 1. And we'll look at verse 9. This is what God says to him. He says, Have I not commanded you, Joshua? Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. That's the opposite of fear. And if you notice, by the way, whenever, he, when, whenever Joshua goes into war then, uh, people start hearing about the God of Israel, Yahweh God, and the mighty things he's done when he set Israel free from, from the slavery in Egypt. And so their hearts melted in fear. That's the language that uses it, melted in fear. And yet here's God saying, but you, you, you're not allowed to be afraid. You're one of my people. Fear is not becoming of my people. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. That's a huge statement. What are you afraid of? Do you know who's right next to you? What are you panicking about? What are you afraid of? You want to evangelize and you don't think you have the right words. What are you afraid of? Go. Okay, he asks a question and you don't know the answer. The correct answer then is, I don't know. Don't be afraid. God is with you. You want to go confront someone because they hurt you. And you're afraid it'll make things awkward. Go and confront. Do it in love. Do it out of respect. And if they react poorly, they react poorly. But don't be afraid. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Yahweh, your God, is with you. Do you realize that, that, is the, that that's like the, the end of the Great Commission? Like, go make disciples of all the nations, right? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all I commanded you. And I am with you even to the end of the age. What are we afraid of? If you knew you were walking into a situation and God were right next to you, if he just took on flesh again, came back as Jesus, and he said, okay, let's do it. Would you be afraid? Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed. For Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. Any decision you make out of fear, any decision you make because of fear of something in the world, is never a decision that's aimed at godliness. If ever you're making a decision because you're afraid of something in the world, that is never a godly intent. That is never the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Let me give you a third way that Satan's accusations affect us. Make us angry and frustrated and violent, but they can get us afraid and anxious and insecure. And then, third way, guilt and shame and seclusion. Guilt and shame and seclusion. And we kind of mentioned a little bit about this last week, right? When you sin, it hinders your prayers. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. prayer of a sinful man, well, that could use a little work. I mean, the, the only prayer that a sinful man should be praying first is confession, repentance, Come before God, be cleansed of unrighteousness because he's faithful and just, right? Then, then pray for whatever else. But I think we all understand. Don't you have those moments where you want to, 
you want to read God's word or you want to pray, but you feel like you can't because you've sinned. Recently, you've sinned. Right? You feel like a hypocrite. You feel like you don't deserve God's acceptance. You feel like you're not worthy to ask him for, for even help. Right? So you just, you're like, I, I can't go to church. I can't, I can't serve. I can't do anything. I can't go to discipleship group. I can't do any of that stuff. And the unction is stirred within you to pray and seek God, and that's the Holy Spirit talking to you. And I tell you the truth, whatever's telling you not to do that, whatever's telling you not to read, not to pray, not to fellowship, not to worship, that is not the Holy Spirit. It's the voice of an enemy. You must ask yourself, who is the one accusing you, saying you aren't worthy and God isn't interested? Who is asking you that in your head? Who is saying that? Who is pointing out your sin and your guilt and saying, because of that, you can't have a relationship with God? Don't you realize that's why God came in flesh to die on the cross? Because he knew exactly about this problem of sin and he fixed it. Who is getting in your head, pointing out your guilt, saying the cross didn't pay for this, telling you to avoid God? The Holy Spirit has called you to seek out the Lord and a demon or a slanderer, an accuser, a devil, a diabolos has told you to give up on him. Don't you see how the enemy speaks to you? Telling you things you know are blatantly untrue theologically. And yet in the moment, it's so convincing. You know God is eager to forgive and to restore to reconcile, to mend. We know that is absolutely true because of everything that the Bible is screaming at us. We know it theologically and then somehow the enemy just convinces us, no, but not you. What you did is too wrong, too evil. God doesn't want to listen to you. You feel like you're not worthy to approach God because of your sin. Well, to clue you in, you're right. You're not worthy to approach God because of your sin. But that's what makes God awesome. Because out of his grace and mercy, he says, still, I want you to come. It's not because you're worthy. It is specifically because you are unworthy that God has reached out and said, I know the depth of your failing. I know the magnitude of your unworth and your disqualification. And now, by my greatness and grace, I invite you forward anyway. You feel like God doesn't want to hear your prayers because you've disappointed Him so badly or because you've disappointed Him so many times? You want to know a verse that's always uh, encouraged me? Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love, and that's so important, the steadfast Steadfast, it's not going away. It's not going away. The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. You battle every day with the same struggles with sin, yes? Sure. Yes, you do. Okay. You think, I've been, I've been fighting this for years. I feel like nothing's happening, and so I, I don't even know if God cares about me anymore. 
right? I feel like I've been failing him so many times. I don't know if he still loves me. And do you understand? You saying, I've been doing this years of my life. I've been doing this for so long. And here's the author saying, his steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. You've been doing this for years. And guess what? Every morning, his mercies are new. Every morning, you wake up. You can say, God, I plead for mercy. And he says, I've got mercy just for you. It's right here. I don't run out. Fourth and last way that Satan's accusations affect us. Discouragement and depression. And even suicidality at times. Discouragement and depression. Discouragement says, that's, that's that thing in your head that says, I'm no good, I'm not making a difference, I always mess up, what's the point, I might as well give up, right? It's that, it's that thing that, that uh, has deflated your motivation, right? It's the thing that, that's uh, just kind of replaced it with like this kind of, oh, what's the point? It, I'll never be able to. We've all been there, we've all thought that at some point, you know, but none of, the, none of these messages are from God. When, when you hear that voice in your head like, what's the point? Like, it'll never work and I'm no good and I'm worthless. Like, those are, that's never the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Never. It can, it can last for a while. And you might go through a season of that where you're just wrestling with that for, for a while. And, you know, hopefully by just speaking to the body of Christ, by talking to church and, and praying with, with one another and stuff, you, you receive the right kind of counsel. And, and hopefully, you know, it'll... It'll redirect you and, and restore you back to joyful obedience rather than focusing on your failures and being convinced that that's just what you are. But when we're discouraged for a long time and when, when it's especially severe, that becomes depression, which is really basic definition of a persistent feeling of sadness, right? You know what depression is. I don't want to get too sidelined on the topic of depression or else I'll lose the plot, but I just want to cover a few quick thoughts real fast on depression. Depression can be a medical condition. Okay? You can be biologically, physiologically, chemically, hormonally more prone to depression than others. Uh, a very good, the best example really is postpartum depression. Uh, that's, that's purely hormonal and chemical. It's, uh, you know, it's a depression that, uh, that has its onset on a mom who has just given birth to her child, and then sometimes they fall into a depression, and then after a little bit of time, they come out of it. It's, it's just because our chemicals affect our mood, and that's just a, a fact of life. Our body, our mind, our heart, our soul, it's all kind of intertwined together. They're connected. When you affect one, you can affect the other. So depression can be a medical condition. Also, it's not a sin to use antidepressants. Right? It's not a sin to use antidepressants, uh, assuming that it's not used as a substitute for sound biblical counseling and prayer. It's, it's fine to use antidepressants if you need to use antidepressants, hopefully just to alleviate symptoms so that you can then have a clearer mind to uh, receive healing and training of the heart. Right? It, antidepressants are not... Uh, I mean, some people see them as like a, this, this cop-out, this, this way out where you're not, you're not praying and stuff, but it shouldn't be a substitute for the spiritual treatment that you need. But it can help you just kind of get past the symptoms of depression so that you can then focus on being trained and healed. So depression can be a medical condition. It can, uh, it's not a sin to use antidepressants. And depression is not a sin in and of itself. 
Depression is not a sin in and of itself. Having a medical condition is not a sin, right? Nobody's like, why are you so diabetic? Like, nobody does that with, with other diseases, right? Um, a medical condition is not a sin. It could be rooted in something sinful, right? Like, other diseases can too. Like, you're diabetic because you are a glutton and you keep eating sugar all the time and you won't discipline yourself out of that. And you, you, can, you can point to something that has caused the condition, maybe, but... Uh, but with depression, it's, it's, it's tricky, you know. You can't always just say it's a sin, and you can't always just say it's a medical condition. You have to be a lot more uh, sensitive on that. It's not always a sin, but it can be used as a sin. You know, some people will use their depression to kind of manipulate others, right? They'll play the victim card, or they'll use it as entitlement. Say, I'm depressed, and so, like, leave me alone. You, you have to treat me well, or you have to pamper me, or something like that. But you say, we have to be discerning on how we approach this topic. It is not wrong to be sad. It's not wrong to be sad. It's not wrong to be depressed. Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus in John 11. Right? That was something that affected him. He was, he was filled with, uh, with sadness. He's at times called a man of sorrows. If you're a Christian and you're depressed, you shouldn't have to hide it. You shouldn't have to pretend that you're happy and joyful all the time. I think that you should have the freedom to say that that's what you're going through. There are plenty of biblical examples of believers struggling with sadness, even to the point of depression. In fact, a third of the psalms, a third of the psalms are psalms of lament. Lament means expressions of deep sorrow. And if that doesn't convince you, there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations. The two biggest prophets in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, yes? Both of those prophets at certain times in their lives expressed express sadness in, by saying they wanted to die. They said, I'd rather die than actually live through these circumstances. That happens in Numbers eleven fifteen and in 1 Kings 19, verses 3 through 5. They were depressed. They, were, they wanted to die. They didn't try to take their lives, but they wanted to. They, they wanted to die. And what's crazy is that even in those moments, in the, in, the, in the deep, dark shadow lands where all they had was desperate faith, in that moment where all they're doing is walking and just saying, God, I don't know why I'm following you. I want to die. I want to be dead. In that moment, God didn't come in and say, hey, what are you doing? Why are you feeling this way? Get over it. I'm God. You should be joyful. He didn't rebuke them for their feelings. He came to them and he met them with love and provision. He said, hey, I know how you're feeling. Let me take care of you for a little bit. Come here, let me, let me make sure you're okay. Sadness is a part of life because we live in a broken world full of sin and suffering and the Bible does not condemn being sad. Christians shouldn't feel guilty, defensive, confused, lost, or ashamed of feeling depressed. As believers, however, discouragement and depression can very easily be because we valued something improperly, right? If we're depressed that we didn't get the thing we wanted, school, job, even a spouse, well, there needs to be repentance there. There needs to be a, a redirecting of the mind, a changing of the mind. How we handle discouragement and sadness and depression is indicative of where we believe the solution lies. Dying is not a solution to depression. Battling it is. Battling depression might be a lifelong struggle, so let's get started on it and let's not give up. 
There's no instant cure, but certainly there's a daily prayer. Look at Psalm 43, verse 5. Just think about how the psalmist talks about this. the, The psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's talking to himself. He's talking to his soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Right? Just because he wrote that didn't mean he was instantly cured. He didn't just snap out of it all of a sudden. But this has to be a a prayer. He wrote it into a psalm, which is a spiritual song, so that he could sing it and repeat it and hear himself say it again and again. Because that's what we need. Satan will accuse you. He'll put in, in your mind all your failures, all your sin, your shortcomings, your wrongdoing, your unworthiness. He'll do that front and center. And you won't be able to think about anything else and so you'll react. Anger and fear and shame, depression. How do you stand against Satan's accusations? How do you stand? Ultimately, I think reacting to our sense of sin and unworthiness, failure, anger, fear, shame, discouragement, you can group that all together with, with, uh, I'm going to use one word, despair. All of that, when we react that way, is despair, okay? When an accuser focuses us on our own shortcomings, we think those problems will not and cannot be fixed, that's what he gets us to believe. You got problems, you got issues, you got challenges, you got setbacks. You have, you have a crisis on your hands, or you've got a tragedy that's that's befallen you. And somewhere in there, he he just gets you to focus on that on yourself inward, and it's turmoil. You, it's not directed at someone else to have conflict and and separate and divide with them, but it's on yourself. And you say, "This is my fault. It's because of me. It's because of who I am." And it, and it turns into despair. It turns into this rage at yourself or at everything around you just because that's, that's how you react to feeling so unworthy. Or it turns into trembling where you're afraid to try anything. You're tra- afraid to, to obey the Lord because you think, I'm just going to get hurt again. Or it turns into hiding because you feel so guilty and ashamed and you just seclude yourself and you say, I, don't, I can't pray, I can't read the Word, I can't go to church, I can't let anyone see me like this. Or it turns into, into weeping because we, we are convinced that we are doomed to stay this way forever. Despair is that conviction that your unworthiness is more powerful or more important than the Savior. Right? That idea that your unworthiness is bigger than Jesus. Despair is an utter lack of faith in the transforming and redeeming, sanctifying power of Jesus. It's the idea that the solution is out there in the world, and if we could just get the thing that we wanted, then we'd be okay. That idea that the solution is in the world, on the earth, not in heaven, not in the Lord. Anger, fear, shame, discouragement, it's all an expression of despair. 
And here's what God says about all of our sin and unworthiness, all our failures, all our shortcomings, all of that stuff, okay? Hebrews 10, verse 14. The author says, For by a single offering, a single offering, namely Jesus on the cross, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 17, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Do you understand what's being said here? The cross of Jesus has paid for every sin, for every failure, for every shortcoming, for every wrongdoing, for every ounce of feeling unworthy. The cross has paid for all of that. And it promises you your full sanctification, your full transformation into glory. Nothing left for you to try to accomplish on your own. There's just you letting God do his thing in your heart. If you believe in what Jesus did on the cross, that is enough. It has perfected for all time your sanctification, meaning your transformation into holiness. That is guaranteed. That will not be halted because last Tuesday you did something really terrible. That will not be undone because two, two weeks ago you did something really wicked. The cross of Christ has paid it all. Or as Revelation 12 said it, the blood of the Lamb has overcome the accuser. Right? They have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. Grasp that and understand that the cross is not just some story. It is the victory cry. Everything that makes you feel like you're not good enough, everything that makes you compare yourself to the world and and think, why am I not like that person? Why do I not have that? All of that stuff, that stuff is stuff we don't need. That's stuff of the world. And Jesus nailed that to the cross. He killed it. He's like, everything that makes you feel unworthy is dead on the cross. He says, do you understand? Your worth comes from me, not from stuff. Not from what other people think. You dwell on, on all these things about yourself and you think I'm so unworthy and stuff. Sure, you're unworthy, but by my grace, I invite you anyway. Don't you see? My steadfast love, it doesn't cease and my mercy's new every day. Philippians 4. If you understand what Jesus did, then you'll get this instruction. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Do you notice right after it says rejoice, rejoice, I'll say it again, rejoice. It follows it up. Epexegetically, it says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Can you take into account the fact that the idea of rejoicing is not a reaction, it's a command? You are told to rejoice and you are expected to obey. Rejoicing is not something that happens to you. You must decide. Rejoice. 
It's a decision. It's a commitment. Rejoice in the good things you have, whether they be many or few. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's an extension of rejoicing. It is reasonable to rejoice because your problems, your, your light and momentary troubles are temporary. Your salvation is eternal. Your security is eternal. Your glory is eternal. It is reasonable to rejoice. It is unreasonable to despair in anger, fear, shame, or depression. For you know that Christ is victorious and Christ has already won. The accusations that Satan makes against you are his evil attempts to make you forget or ignore what you know to be true. If the devil accuses you of something you did, as we've said previously, then you remind him of what Christ did. And if the devil tries to tell you that your future is doomed, you remind him that his future is doomed. I want to close with this passage. I'm just going to read it to you and then we're going to be done. Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including Satan and demons, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your steadfast love and for your mercies, which are new every morning. We thank you that you do not let go, you do not give up, you do not turn away, you do not forsake. Because, God, there are days when it feels like there are harmful spirits that torment us and bring us to despair. And maybe it's just us and our flesh doing that. Maybe it's the world that's pounded that into our minds, or maybe it's the devil that's bringing it out. But in those moments, Lord, may we not despair, for despair is the opposite of hope. It's the opposite of trust. It's the opposite of faith. 
we know you are victorious. We know the blood of the Lamb has defeated the accuser and thrown him down. A day will come when you will finish the job and end evil once and for all. For all the things that come up in our minds that make us think we're unworthy, remind us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We are more than conquerors in all these things. For if God is for us, and he is, for Jesus is interceding for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can condemn us? It is only God who justifies, and no one can undo that. Nothing, no power of of earth, no power of sin, no power of man, no power of hell can undo what's been done by the power of your cross. You instilling your worth in us and promising your glory to us cannot be taken away. So may we not covet some other thing, some lesser thing. And may we not fall into despair that we have something of far less value than what you have promised. Call us out of despair and back into faith and trust and hope in Christ. For you are for us. No one can stand against us. May this be true of our church. Guard our hearts and do it for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.